analytics should be used in place to uh, to support and solidify what you know scouts are saying, what coaches are seeing. Uh, it should be evidence that's usable by coaches to help measure performance and evaluate. Numbers are your friend, and I think what you're seeing a lot now in sports is the people that are really against them are the ones that are falling by the the wayside. Sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Vaud Performance, the makers of the Nordboard. If you haven't checked out their website yet, I highly suggest you head over there, whether it's return to play, injury prevention, or just plain performance testing. Vaud Performance has the tools that you need. Check them out at vaudperformance.com. Today on the Decoding Excellence Show, I have guest Dr. Mike San on to discuss analytics, pitching mechanics, muscular fatigue, and the importance of truly understanding the implications for rule changes in MLB. This is a wide-ranging conversation that discusses monitoring strategies, muscular fatigue, and performance technologies. If you are interested in using technology and information to impact your athlete's well-being, then this is a show that you cannot miss. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Mike San. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Hey, thanks, uh, thanks for so much for uh, you know, agreeing to come on and, and talk a little bit with us. Um, I just, you know, I find your materials and everything that you've been sharing on social media riveting. And, and again, the whole nature of this show for me is to sort of scratch my own itch and to have an opportunity to reach out to people like yourself, people that are in, involved in research, involved in their p- professional pursuit and whatever discipline that they might be in, and having an opportunity to pick your brain and uh, and get to know you a little bit more on a personal level and to get to understand what makes you tick, what's what makes you you. And uh, I'm just excited that you had the availability and we've finally been able to uh, connect. How's, uh, how's everything going for you today? Things are going well. It's a beautiful blue sky here up in Hamilton. Uh, pretty cold today, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful winter day. Oh, perfect, right? It's uh, it, it's deceiving out here. So even though it's like early March for for us in in Kansas, um, it's been the the least amount of winter than we've ever had before. So you know, it's shorts and t shirts in the middle of February. So I you know, for me, I can't complain as a northern you know coming from Michigan. I'm I'm used to you know packing up in a parka and, and mo- moving around and having seven scarves on so it's a welcomed you know I've, and certainly i've been down here for a little bit but it's a welcome change to get away from the snowy uh wintry mix that usually seems to linger around uh forever man but uh i uh i wanted to get you on today because i think you you've been sharing some great materials and i again i wanted to get to know you a little bit more and talk about maybe what your specialty is, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you kind of dive in a little bit deeper to that as well. But I, uh, I wanted for you, um, or wanted to hear from you, uh, maybe like an, an updated bio. Like, what are you currently up to in your day to day? In you know what you might consider your nine to five, and then 
what is uh what what are you doing in the evenings like what is your uh what's what's the latest going on in your life yeah so uh the uh, the passions and the occupations uh Venn diagram is starting to bleed together a lot more than it was maybe six months ago but uh, i work um i work a, at an organization in Ontario called the Occupational Health Clinic for Ontario workers. And I'm an ergonomist there. So my role there is to be a resource to anyone in the province of Ontario uh, who wants to know more about occupational injury or how to keep themselves healthy and safe in the workplace. Uh, and primarily through the, uh, the discipline of ergonomics, which is the study of, of how people work. So uh, my day job is ergonomics, uh, primarily for uh, our, our grand workforce here. Uh, but what's been bleeding into the night is applying all those lessons I've learned in ergonomics uh, for injury prevention uh, and applying those to, uh, to my favorite pastime of, of baseball. So uh, trying to understand, you know, how pitchers perform, uh, how hitters perform and and how we can apply what we've learned in this totally, you know, somebody would say a totally opposite field, uh, but trying to learn some of those lessons and, and bring them forward to, to baseball. Man, that's, that's fascinating. I, that it lends me to what is my next question, which is how did you get interested? What, what was the story behind maybe your passion? If you can recall back to childhood memories or adolescent memories, why why baseball? What it, what is it that first sort of excites you about that sport? And then we'll maybe dive into uh, the injury prevention piece uh, second. So uh, my family, uh, we've always joked that we're terrible Canadians because uh, every birthday I had growing up as a kid just outside of Toronto, it was going to Blue Jays games and, and playing Little League there. Uh, my sister played uh, softball growing up. Uh, my dad played slow pitch. My mom was my baseball coach. Uh, we were just huge baseball junkies. And then football was a ways down in second. And then hockey was somewhere off in the in the distant uh, third. So uh, we uh, sometimes get threatened to take our passports away. But we were just always a huge baseball family. Um, and the last few years with the Blue Jays making the playoffs again, it, it's brought back a lot of those great memories of being in grade two, grade three, and watching the Jays win the World Series. Uh, so yeah, the uh, baseball has always been a huge part of my life. Um, I There was a long period where I, I didn't do anything related to playing after high school. And uh then, uh, you know, during my, my doctoral studies and my postdoc, uh, I started getting into some of the, uh, the databases, uh, the pitch FX databases and applying just some of the things I knew about statistics and research methods and ergonomics, uh, and bringing it all together. So it's my passions and my professions and we're bringing them all together and, and having a lot of fun with it. And I think that's like where the, the magic happens when you can start to piece together both what is your professional means of, of income and what you're doing to support your, your lifestyle and your life and your family and everything else, and then the passion, right? And that's, that's, uh, that seems to be baseball at this point and, and this injury prevention piece. And as I look through and, and certainly uh, having conversations with other professionals in the industries, it seems like you're, you're in a good spot with the Blue Jays as well, just in close proximity, because they also have a, a huge injury prevention and, and certainly emphasis, as most um, professional organizations do, on pitching mechanics and using 
technology and using um, objectifiable information to make uh, real-time live decisions. So that's I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit more, if you would, about what your doctoral studies were in and maybe, you know, if you feel motivated, compelled to kind of dive deep and, and talk a little bit more at detail about it. Um, this is sort of my first exposure was, was reading some of your work and, and going through that. And, and, um, I'd love for you to share that with the audience of, uh, of a large, uh, large deal here. Yeah. So our, uh, our lab at McMaster university in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, we had a grant with the automotive industry and our grant was to better understand uh, ergonomics job simulations using digital human models. So to, to break that down, uh, it's essentially using the same uh, machines and equipment that uh, EA Sports used to do predictions of assembly line work and see if jobs are acceptable and keep workers safe. Uh, so my my little piece of that puzzle was to better understand how muscle fatigue works. And we were a, first and foremost a, a biomechanics lab. But uh, when you when you study ergonomics, uh, biomechanics is just a, a small piece of that puzzle. So my PhD thesis actually involved uh, some traditional biomechanics work looking at force production. Uh, but then I, I had a study in there that was uh, a lot more neurophysiology based. So uh, looking at uh, muscle s- stimulation and, and twitch responses during fatigue uh, and then even some psychophysics uh, in there. So relying on people's perceptions uh, to see how much force they deemed to be acceptable. And then we got some mathematical modeling in at the end because you always have to have that uh, that type of nerdy stuff uh, when you're when you're in biomechanics. But uh, the really fun thing uh, about ergonomics is that uh, the, you're limited to your imagination when it comes to tools to, to study um, study the field. So uh, we have people who are trained uh, cognitive uh, ergonomists who have a psychology background. We've got mechanical engineers, industrial engineers, uh, kinesiologists, uh, physiologists, uh, really across the entire board. Uh, and we're all trying to get together at the end and, and understand, you know, how do injuries happen? How do we keep people more uh, productive, uh, have higher quality work and, and, you know, have people go at home at the end of the day and be able to do their hobbies and spend time with their families. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, uh, the overall crux of it was how can we predict fatigue, uh, in complex tasks? And, uh, the initial focus of that was how do we predict fatigue in, uh, one of the, the big three auto manufacturers assembly lines where people are, you know, moving tires, using wrenches, they're doing all these different things together. Uh, you know, how much fatigue would they incur? Um, and then, uh, you know, in the postdoc world, uh, what I ended up doing was applying that to, uh, to baseball. And, uh, we had one paper published, uh, in journal of sports sciences that looked at the influence of the possible pitch clock rule, uh, on predicted muscle fatigue. And that was kind of my launching point into the baseball world. That's yeah, that's fascinating. And if, if yeah, for the audience, certainly, if you haven't checked out your blog, it's Mike Sons, S-O-N-N-E dot C-A. If you're fascinated about uh, everything science and baseball, but uh, I'd love for you to also I mean, like when you think about the the blend uh, between what you do professionally and this passion of baseball, I mean, where maybe it's 
intuitive. Maybe it, it, it comes from, you know, just the, the nature of having, you know, the two disciplines, but why, what do you think was the, the genesis? What do you think the reason was that you started to gravitate to pitching or mechanics and, that muscular fatigue and injury sort of injury rates? Like how did that come to be, uh, in your world? Honestly, it was, it was kind of just, uh, this might be a fun thing to do. And over a couple scotches with some friends, we talked about the idea and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, was relatively easy to, to get something put into the fatigue model and, and give us some results that were relatively interesting. So, uh, like most of the ideas that, uh, I've had in the research world, it's uh, it it's tends to just come from having general conversations with friends, and and then all of a sudden you have a research idea. Um, you know, kind of blending the the professional and the the uh, the hobbies. Uh, the one thing like I was saying, the Venn diagram is kind of closing because uh, the way that I give general ergonomics presentations now to you know I was down talking to my brothers and sisters with the United Steelworkers Union in uh, in Pittsburgh last September, and you know there's some people in the room that are like oh you know my job there's no way ergonomics can be applied to this, uh, so I'm I'm here because uh, you know it, it's it's part of the schedule and I have to be yeah. But what I do is I start off the presentation and I say, okay, uh, here's a workplace where workers are working a really high effort job. Uh, their cycle repeats up, you know, up to 120 times per shift. Uh, and now, and now their management is trying to take away some of their rest break during their shift. And, you know, that's a risk because it's going to cause them more fatigue. Do you have any idea what industry this is? And people come in, they say, oh, it's nursing. Uh, oh, it's an assembly line. Oh, it's a, you know, an office worker. It's this and that. And then I put up the slide and say, no, this is actually an example of applying ergonomics to the baseball world. And after that, everybody's pretty interested and they kind of say, okay, you know what? I, I can see maybe, maybe there's a role for this in my workplace. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I wonder too, with just how data heavy the baseball world is, I mean, between like sabermetrics and, and the fact that there literally everything is, is predictable in some respects to baseball. And it relies so much on numbers, at least historically, if that might've lent itself to being one of the, the first sort of sports that, that really had such a data emphasis. And I'm, I'm trying to think of other sports that might have preceded America's pastime that relied so much on numbers and analytics. But um, if you were to put on your sort of Nostradamus sort of cap and, and sort of predict the future, I mean, do you see others? I mean, I, I think, but do you see other sports starting to have more and more of a, a analytical approach to sort of measuring this monitoring, measuring this muscular fatigue? Well, I mean, if you look at the Sloan Sports Conference that's going on right now, yeah. it may not necessarily be fatigue that they're looking at, but uh, there was actually there was one paper that looked at uh, fatigue in like NASCAR or IndyCar drivers. Um, so everybody wants like every sport's the same. They all want to know how to predict if they're going to win better. Uh, they want to know how they can predict if their players will stay healthy. Um, so it's all the same. Baseball is unique in that it's the same event repeated over and over again uh, with like a fixed number of, of possible outcomes. 
uh, unlike hockey or soccer, where, you know, it's a very dynamic and, and fluid game. And, you know, it'd be very difficult to predict what's going to happen on a given play. Uh, baseball is unique in that respect because, you know, realistically, everyone gets the same opportunities. And whether you're a really good pitcher or a really bad pitcher, uh, we have data. Um, and in a lot of cases, we have the same amount of data, uh, whether you know you had a good outing or a bad outing. So that's what makes baseball unique. So I don't think you'll ever get to a point where we have the same quality of data in every other sport or the, uh, the ease of analysis in every other sport. But uh, you can see right now, you know, there's NHL analytics. Every sport is is uh, is really getting into this analytics realm. And I even remember watching a couple of football games this year where they were showing player top speeds because they had accelerometers embedded in their their shoulder pads. And you know, you're looking at concussion risk factors from player speed and that. So it's a it's an exciting world if you're a data scientist and a sports fan right now. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I'm looking at like the NFL and what they're doing with zebra technologies. And then, you know, you have sport, you have uh, technology companies with accelerometers and gyroscopes like catapult sports starting to uh, bleed into every sort of sports, whether it's NBA or uh, hockey. And the reason I mentioned Blue Jays is because I, I thought at least on I don't think this is proprietary information by any means. Hopefully not. Uh, I'm trying not to get a seasoned assist letter. But, uh, yeah, or just some black van show up in front of your house and then you disappear and they're never I'm, heard from again. I'm, go I'm gone and uh, you know, my wife and kids <laughs> don't know where I'm at. But I mean, I know they were working with some minor league organizations trying to develop a, uh, a pitching algorithm to predict muscular fatigue through the use of uh, a center mass uh, GPS and accelerometer. So, and I believe Blue Jays was one of the pilot teams that were doing that. Well, I know like that that catapult uh, system. Marcus Stroman he tore his ACL uh, two years ago, and that was like a huge, huge thing for monitoring his central fatigue uh, when he was uh, doing his rehab. And uh, I mean, there's a great article on the Sportsnet.ca website by Shai Davidi uh, that talks about the entire rehab process and how he worked with Nikki Huffman, the, yeah. the physiotherapist at the Blue Jays, uh, or at Duke at the time who issues now with the blue jays but just the how uh how data driven his rehab process was and i think that's what you're kind of seeing too now in not only rehab but in some of the monitoring that they do of pitchers like you know years ago it was 100 pitches because it was a nice round number and you know 200 innings was a nice round number but realistically if they're not showing any signs of central or peripheral fatigue then there's no sense in stopping pitchers uh, and then you know the opposite of that is if they are showing those signs and they haven't hit that inning limit then that's the time to shut a pitcher down yeah yeah no doubt and and Nikki's great and the conversations I've had with her uh, at least on Twitter has been um, I always walk away from them and my mind is blown and I'm thinking about like, what can we continue to do better here? Um, and then, yeah, I think you, when you, when you mentioned Sloan, I, I'm regretful that I didn't make it up to Boston because I, with silver on silver this year, I, I'm, I heard that, uh, it only was, uh, it was like standing room only and it was crowded and it was amazing. Um, I'm curious about, you know, like obviously with sort of the fixed outcomes and the sort of already the historical analytical approach of baseball. I mean, we're starting to see the sports view as far as positional tracking and NBA. Um, we already have accelerometry data with a number of sports. And when you look at certainly like football, 
um, and well, I, I say football, but I guess I really mean uh, like American soccer. Um, those organizations already rely so much on statistics, and I think when we look at sort of that Sloan Conference, and you know, how far out do you think that we really are from having a better understanding? of uh, both using statistics, using analytics, using numbers to sort of impact coaching decisions in sort of mainstream professional coaches' daily sort of decision-making abilities. Are we close? Are we far? And from in your sort of professional opinion. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing. I was having a, a conversation with a friend of mine uh, named Dan Hamilton, who he works in the basketball field uh, doing some analytics. And what I was saying is that it's interesting because there may already be a lot of that stuff happening, but the big difference between, uh, you know, the ergonomics world and the sports world is generally all companies, um, are working together in ergonomics to try and prevent injury because it's, it's not good for the economy to have injured workers. Um, it's not good for, you know, you know, this, socioeconomic uh, aspects of it are, are it's not good to have those injuries so people work together and you know my phd grant was funded by an organization called the u.s car which is a conglomerate of the big three auto industry uh who work together on non-competitive issues but in the sports world everything is a competitive issue so there's not a lot of open data um well, you, you see some, but then there's other things that are kept secret, like we'll never have access to all the catapult data from every organization. Uh, we'll never have access to all the modus sleeve data from every organization uh, because those are proprietary things. And even something like uh, that Kinetrack system where they're looking at capturing picture kinematics, um, that's, that's really useful stuff for a team to have to try and get a competitive advantage. So there's a lot of issues that um, – may be already being addressed but we may not know how far along they are in being towards being solved because they're proprietary and um there was a great article in that own sports conference that dan sent me that looked at just like the the lack of transparency and the lack of open uh, access uh, algorithms and data that are in all these papers especially in like the finalists but realistically, um, a lot of those abstracts are, you know, dynamic resumes for these authors who are looking to get jobs in sports. Uh, and then uh, once they're snapped up by a team, you know, that now becomes their competitive advantage to try and beat the next team and, and win a championship and put more fans in their stands and, and have more prestige. So um, the nature of sport in general, uh, it's causing a lot of um, advances, which is wonderful. But then we kind of are in the dark a little bit at the real uh, cutting edge of it because we just don't know exactly what is being done by all these different organizations. Yeah. And I think, you know, until there's a sort of an open source database for some of these, mm -hmm. which will never happen, right, for sort of uh, IP purposes, um, it the ability to scrape data and then be able to get sort of a, enough data points to make some some decisions and run it through, uh, you know, predictive algorithms, I think will be incredibly challenging and probably very limited just because of the professional nature and the competitiveness of this sort of professional uh, market that they're in. And, you know, obviously you start looking at, 
you know, when it's equipped to human subjects and they, uh, now you're dealing with player unions and player associations, which is, uh, uh, it seems like a, a challenge right now that the NBA is certainly going through with trying to figure out wearables and, and where their stance is from, a you know, uh, both a player health, player wellness standpoint, and also, you know, from a contract negotiation standpoint. So, uh, it, I'd be curious with, with, uh, with your background, um, we, you said something just a moment ago, and I thought for clarification purposes, just because, again, this is a wide-ranging conversation mm-hmm. and discussion with, you know, hopefully borrowing from every discipline. But for those people that aren't familiar with the modus sleeve, and I know I've referenced Catapult and other sort of uh, technology companies, but from a professional standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, and sometimes at the opposite ends of the continuum – this sort of modus sleeve is a, a a economical sort of way of starting to get some some workloads as far as from a pitcher's shoulders and and certainly it's made its way into the NFL, which I think was maybe not its intended purposes. But could you share a little bit if you feel comfortable and, and uh, to talk a little bit about the modus sleeve and and uh, and how it's sort of infiltrated uh, the the pitching the baseball world. Yeah, I actually just had a really good conversation with uh, with Ben Hansen, who's the chief technology officer for Modus. And they're a rapidly growing company. They started out as a motion capture kind of biomechanics company. And now they're uh, getting into consumer products for baseball and, and football. And what it is, is is a little accelerometer with a Bluetooth interface that links up with your cell phone, uh, iPhones right now. Uh, and it gives you um, things like predicted UCL stress, uh, it gives you or ulnar collateral ligament stress, so that ligament that can rupture and require a pitcher to get Tommy John surgery. Uh, it looks at uh, your arm slot, your shoulder rotation uh, angle, uh, all these different um, different things that you know. At one point in time, you needed to have a half million dollar motion capture lab to get even close to these data. Now it's available for like two hundred dollars, and uh, you can you create like a team account, and all your different players can feed into it. And as a coach, you can say, okay, this person's got uh, you know a large workload. We we should maybe back off of them, or this person has a little more room to work a bit harder today. Um, and they recently put out an abstract that showed uh, predicted UCL stress. Uh, from this modus uh, sleeve was really comparable to, you know, a more expensive lab, um, which is super exciting. And as long as these data are reliable, I mean, this is our the infancy of some of this workload monitoring, and it's going to just keep getting better. But you're so much further along now by having access to something like this than we were, you know, 10 years ago, when we people were kind of just guessing at workloads. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is that point where the intersection between technology and sport performance is is relying on this ability of of capturing what was otherwise very subjective information. Like, hey, it looks like, you know, the pitch pitch velocity is down, maybe they're a little fatigued or, you know, they're off their mark. Okay, let's pull them out. And now we're starting to get some objectable sort of uh, real information to actually make some decisions uh, from it. Uh to to pair that um, with maybe another line of questioning, uh, I'd be curious to hear because obviously this has made its way into baseball and, and your background with baseball um, and the, the blend of technology and everything. But so I I want to dive down into 
some of your blog because if and again i i'll put it out there mike son s-o-n-n-e dot c-a um with the mlb announcing at least the idea or playing with the idea i i literally i think i was listening to the jim rome show and then last week or two weeks ago perhaps and they were talking about um the proposed at least pitch clock to try to speed up the pace of the mlb game and and why you know we're the mlb and baseball is losing potentially a a younger fan base and they're sort of proposing that the game drags on I, I think this would be a great segue into your one of your latest blog pieces about pitch clocks and its relation on muscular fatigue and injury prevention or injury sort of causing mechanisms. But if you want to go ahead and take the baton on that, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are and, and I'll let you I'll let you run with it for a little bit. <laughs> so um, there was a really good paper by uh by Dr. Bruce and Dr. Andrews that just looked at some of the different risk factors related to uh, to injuries um, in pitchers. And one of the things they came up with was fatigue. And when I say fatigue, I don't mean like, um, like okay, so taking one step back, there's two types of fatigue we typically study. There's central fatigue, which is, uh, you know, an inefficiency of your, your heart to pump blood and deliver oxygen to your tissues. Um, and then there's peripheral fatigue, which is like a failure of the muscle to do a contraction and generate a force. And they, they kind of play off each other. But muscle fatigue is the one that we're concerned about when exposing the ulnar collateral ligament to more stress. So when somebody throws, um, we know that that stress level is more than enough to rupture that ligament. So there's clearly something happening that uh, the body is using to protect the ligament during throwing. And what that typically is, is you have a group of muscles in your forearm. I'm I'm just realizing this is an audio podcast and I'm (laughs) sitting here in my office gesturing to myself and touching my arm. But um, there's a group of muscles in your forearm called the flexor pronator mass. Those contract and they take the stress off the ligament in your elbow. So if those uh, muscles can't generate as much force because they're fatigued, now that stress is going to get transmitted into the ligament. And as a result, that's where we see uh, injury happening. So it makes total sense from a scientific standpoint uh, why fatigue would be a concern here. And velocities are going up, which has been tied to having higher UCL stresses. We know that uh, Tommy John surgeries are becoming more and more prevalent for more and more pitchers at younger ages, and they're all kind of tied together. So with the pitch clock thing, what I did was just kind of modeled what predicted fatigue would be um, for different pitchers uh, if they were enforced to have a, that 20-second pitch clock versus their self-selected pace, which I, I got from some of that open data, the MLB game day data. And in this one example that I have with a, a David Price start, uh, if you implemented the the pitch clock, he'd have an 18% increase in the amount of fatigue in his forearm muscles and only an 8.3% uh, decrease in time of the game. So you're essentially talking about shaving a couple minutes off the game. And in all honesty, if you're seeing a good, well-pitched, well-performed baseball game where there's lots of hits and lots of action – uh, do you really care about that extra three minutes at the end of the day? Um, so really the, the point that I'm trying to make with this pitch clock argument is that if we know one of the guaranteed risk factors for increasing the risk of Tommy John surgery in pitchers is fatigue, 
And there's now two scientific papers out there that have shown that pitch clocks are going to increase fatigue. And there's a group out of, uh, I believe, Taiwan that studied uh, a more physiological approach to how much fatigue a pitcher would have, uh, you know, even on the consecutive days in a pitch clock environment. And they showed this carried over by like three days. Like this is a known risk factor putting in that constraint of saying somebody has to pitch in a given time and not when they're ready. So why are you going down this road uh, when you have an injury epidemic and at the same time, you are willingly going to expose your pitchers to a, a risk factor. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I think especially when, you know, every sort of professional organization is doing everything they can right now through uh, implementing uh, policy to protect the professional athletes that they serve. And you look at player unions and player associations and the power of their voice and their vote, um, it it blows my mind that sometimes what can be presented uh, to them is counter to their actual well-being or longevity for the sake of trying to increase exposure of the game that they play for an increased revenue or an increased sort of viewership. And I get the understanding from a business economical model, but you need the best players on the field. And when you're having a pitching duel or you're having a, a great played game, that's going to turn eyeballs to the television or get people in the seats more so than shaving three or four minutes off the clock to try to get one more commercial in. Well, that's exactly it, right? They're not talking about reducing commercial breaks or you know, finding ways to minimize the amount of advertisements. It, it ultimately comes down to money and, and trying to make more money. And uh, you know, I don't know. It, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily seem like uh, the best decisions are always made when it, uh, when it comes to this, uh, this argument. You know, th- that being said, um, maybe you know, like I know in uh, the SEC conference, the the way their pitch clock works is it's only when uh, there's nobody on base. So maybe it won't have as big of an influence, but I just I, I can't see that uh, these pitchers or these uh, these decisions being made at the highest level are being made with uh, equal weighting to all different sides of the table. It seems like the only weighting they care about is, is this a possible way for us to make more money for the game? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a, this is a good point too, because, you know, this listening audience may be familiar with the, the day-to-day sort of uh, demands of what a pitcher might go through, and maybe they aren't. I mean, I, again, this is a, a wide-ranging conversation that sort of distills uh, intangibles of what make people successful in all various dif- different professional pursuits. But I think this would be a great segue, uh, at least for me, for you as well, um, to to share that, like you are the host of a podcast called Day Games, which interviews, and it seems so far and in, in, into this season that it surrounds itself with baseball. So if if any of this, my listening audience is interested in sort of what you're talking about already, please, I highly suggest go on iTunes, go to uh, go to this blog, and uh, and I'll link it into the show notes as well to uh, to Day Games because. Uh, for me, being four episodes in, um, it, I find it riveting, and, and certainly with working uh, with baseball and softball and, and uh, throwing athletes, there's a lot that I can take as a coach, as a practitioner, from the materials that you've been sharing. So I just wanted to say thank you and kind of plug your show as well. Um, Thanks. 
because again, I think you're doing great work. Uh, you're great work with the show as well. Um, I'd be curious. I, now we've talked, uh, we've, we've geeked out a little bit and that's, that's by purpose of the show. But before I go into the next line, because I, I have to say this because I will regret if I don't, um, in 2000, I, I'll, this is my attempt of at least telling someone else this story outside of my brother. But in 2010, I had an idea that was, this was at the sort of the, the boom, and certainly in Australia and overseas, they've been equipping accelerometers on athletes for, for many, many years before we started to gravitate to using that in the, in the States. But I thought, why hasn't anybody ever affixed this to uh, around the elbow, around the shoulder? And I was like, if I could develop a sleeve that had accelerometers and market it to baseball, that would be a million billion dollar idea. But uh, obviously, right, like the difference between a million dollar million dollar idea and a million dollars is actually the execution of it. And which <laughs> that is, is me. a big one. That's a big one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, okay, great idea. Don't know anything to do with it. I don't know how to <laughs> proceed with it. But damn, that would be a great idea. So I'm glad that there are uh, companies that are are doing this. Um, and you're the the second person that's heard that story, that idea. That at least at least. Uh, I feel good that someone's making a profitable business off doing that. Um, how did this is again, I, how did you get, was there anybody in your life and maybe it was during undergrad, during your grad work or doctoral work? I mean, how did you a mentor, a person that pushed you in this? I mean, to, to study what you do um, and pursue a, certainly a, a PhD route for it. What a, any significant influencers or mentors in your life? Yeah, so uh, my supervisors for all my degrees, um, Dr. Dave Andrews was my master's supervisor, Dr. Jim Potvin was my supervisor for my doctoral studies, and Dr. Peter Keir uh, supervised me during my postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, all three of those guys were great scientists. They've done some incredible work in their careers, but ultimately what uh, attracted me to work with all of them was how they had a, a great interest in the world outside of their own research careers. So Dr. Andrews was a great photographer and an awesome family man. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, he was a great slow pitch player and, uh, you know, he was, uh, always, uh, had a great sense of humor. Uh, Dr. Potvin and I, we got along great, uh, talking about music and, and football. Um, you know, he, uh, is probably one of the smartest people that I've ever met in my life. He's, uh, it's intimidatingly intelligent. Uh, but we always got along because we just had all these shared interests in, uh, in things that weren't necessarily just the science, but, that made our relationship that much better so that we could have uh, a really good scientific relationship. And then Dr. Keir, he was a, he's a good hockey goalie, a uh, great sense of humor, um, and, and just really a lot of fun to work with. So all three of them had the, you know, the main attraction of these are great people. <laughs> they're fun people to be around. And they're the type of people that you, uh, you know, you want to spend those, those long hours with because, uh, you know, it's not always a, a smooth road when you're when you're doing those types of studies. So you need to have some sort of a human connection, not just a, a research and academic connection with those guys. Man, yeah, I, uh, I think some of the, the, the most significant mentors in my life has shared that that dual approach of being 
completely committed to your professional pursuits, whatever they might be, the thing that that's passionate uh, or, or drives you, but also to also respect the other half of it. And that's the life and the disconnect from it. And because sometimes passion can be, it can be a double edged sword. And, you know, like for me, especially in the coaching industry, you know, I, I, I see way, way too many really, really high level successful coaches that ultimately pursue that. But at the sake of it, lose friends and lose family and lose loved ones and lose kind of a sense of identity outside of, uh, of their own sort of professional pursuits. So, you know, I, I feel also pretty uh, fortunate that I had very early mentors that, that also sh- shared that same sort of resonating experience of, you know, like pursue what you love, but also, you know, have the humility and have the ability to disconnect from it. And which I think is lost. And and when you do have those passions, you know what they they bring everything together. Um, you know the, the, this baseball thing. Um, it, it did come about at a point in my life where I was definitely experiencing a lot of uh, burnout and just the pressure of being in a postdoc and constantly searching for uh, for faculty positions. And I knew uh, in my downtime it was difficult for me to turn it off completely. So I channeled it into something that was that was constructive. And uh, you know like in those times where it was a hard time sleeping or, uh, you know, you're doubting whether or not this was the right career move. It was something that would be productive, keep me moving forward. Uh, and a lot of the ideas that I had in the baseball world, uh, I've actually applied back to the ergonomics world and vice versa. So uh, they really don't, uh, they don't operate independently of each other. And it's the same with those, those mentors of mine. Uh, a lot of the things that they did in their, you know, their spare time, uh, those fueled some of their passions for their research projects. And, and, you know, you can't view your hobbies as being something that takes away from your professional life. It's something that complements it. Uh, it keeps you sane. Uh, it keeps you, you know, in touch with the the rest of the world that's outside of your lab. And those are really important things. Yeah, no doubt. I think uh, yeah, having that sort of approach, it, they uh, they only make each other stronger. You know, like for me, and I, I said this on a, maybe a similar show, but. Um, the I always try to tell my staff members here that the very best advice I can give them is to be where their feet are, and if they're in the uh, if they're in the weight room or they're in our training environment, to be fully committed here, and then when they're back at home, to be fully committed with their families and their loved ones. And uh, I think it fuels both of them because you know, like obviously, when you give your best at uh, your professional pursuits. You should want to go home and recharge with your family. And after fully recharging uh, with your family or your other sort of hobbies and other pursuits, um, you should be fully committed to come back in and, and do the job that you, you certainly love and you pursue. Um, I, I, I don't know. I know this is a wide-ranging conversation, but I'd love to kind of dive back into uh, because, again, I think you're right now you're the first guest that I have that – uh, is so deeply involved in analytics and s- statistics and looking at muscular fatigue. And, you know, like my purpose and what I've really tried to drive here has been about workload monitoring and prevention of, of injuries. But, you know, there was a, uh, at the SSAC this year, they spoke about talent acquisition and both a, a talent ID and acquisition as, you know, the analogy they used was buying a Ferrari and then wanting to 
emphasize that the, if you're going to invest in a car of that caliber, you you probably want to make sure that you're fueling it with premium gasoline and that you want to take care of it. And that's through analytics and through smart quality training. Um, maybe being separate from the training piece, what is it that analytics right now offers to all sports that sports should start to apply or look into um, as their organization and their sport program grows? It's At the end of the day, it's objectivity. Um, it's not uh, like I, you see a lot of stupid movies like Trouble with the Curve and stuff like that that are like, oh, analytics are the devil. They're, they're taking away the old school scouts. Um, I think like even like I, I went into a long tangent to, with this uh, development of a metric to say which pitcher in baseball has the best stuff. Um, that's not meant to be like, oh, let's uh, let's get rid of the influence of scouts. It's meant to like objectively state like, OK, you were right. He does have really good stuff. Uh, analytics should be used in place to uh, to support and solidify what you know scouts are saying what coaches are seeing uh, it should be evidence that's usable by coaches to help measure performance and evaluate uh, players um, numbers are your friend uh, and I think what you're seeing a lot now in sports is the people that are really against them are the ones that are falling by the the wayside and they can get intimidated by them and I know there's been points in my career where like the the math and that can get pretty intimidating um, but you have to embrace it and and realize it's not that complicated at the end of the day and if it's a metric worth using uh, typically it is relatively easy uh, to understand if you put in the time to understand it. So analytics in the sporting realm is meant to be a great complement for coaches and, uh, and scouts um, to help them do their jobs uh, at a higher level. And that's, you know, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that sometimes it's, it's fearful for practitioners, coaches, positions to think that it's going to replace their position. And it's really meant to complement and actually help them do their jobs better and to give them the objective sort of feedback that what they're seeing and what they're perceiving is not just a bias, but rather that it, it's honing their coach's eye or their recruiting eye and solidifying what their subjective opinions are of an athlete or of a person or whatever uh, against objective data. And I think that's that's fascinating um, to me, you know, especially when, you know, you have uh, – you have people like Elon Musk talk about AI and robots replacing jobs that it's I think it's reassuring to hear that, you know, the, the your analytic department in your MLB club is not not at an adverse of the front office trying to take recruiting and scouting uh, positions away. Yeah, and it's not even like I, I don't think it should even be viewed as something that's threatening to the players. Like the players who embrace it, uh, I think they just put themselves in a, a better position. I mean, there's always like paralysis by analysis that you have to be careful with, but uh, you know, the, really they they can be used by uh, anyone involved in sport to uh, to just kind of solidify what they uh, what they're seeing out there. Yeah, and you know, on, on top of that, to kind of bridge, you know, like we see it so much in the NBA with the uh, the whoop bands and sort of uh, um, a Adam Silver's sort of uh, ban on wearable technology within the NBA games. And, you know, there's been a number of players that sort of um, purposely 
uh, warn devices to monitor their own health. And again, I can't speak for any of the, the people, but as an athlete, certainly as a coach, furthermore, you know, I use that information in their very best decisions to affect their training load and their practice load and to help opinion, to help uh, shape our practice structures. And I think, you know, ultimately, I know it, it may seem invasive to an athlete to wear uh, a monitoring device that that really objectifies all their game and positional movements. Um, but the way I look at it is that it's in the athlete's health best interests to use the information objectively rather than having a coach subjectively just predispose you to whatever a predisposed practice plan was or a, a pitch count was, especially when, you know, pitch velocity or, or uh, you know, the uh, um, pitch velocity or anything like that uh, affects, you know, UCLs differently than, you know, a, a number of other sort of metrics. So um, I'd love to get a couple opinions from you as you sort of uh, – um, continue to go down this rabbit hole a little bit, but where, you know, do you think that sports on a larger scale will start to grow more of their analytic departments? Do you think that we'll start to see game time? And again, you're on the front lines and, you know, most of my job and most of my day-to-day interactions are with athletes on the floor in the training environment. So I don't necessarily get to see uh, behind the curtain like you do. But do you start to to think that that we are close to seeing real-time information or analytics being used to affect real-time game uh, decisions on the coaching or on the sidelines, on the, the coach's box, wherever that coach might be? I think that's a that's a challenging proposition to to look at, and um, I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I know like the modus stuff was not available to the coaches uh, in the dugouts, um, from from what I understood. So right now, I think there's a, a blockade on that, but realistically, I guess it, it starts to come down to uh, you know you know, the whole analysis and paralysis thing, um, it would obviously be helpful. Like if there was, if there was some sort of, uh, great, um, device that was out there that did a really good job of saying, Oh, this is uh, somebody who's at risk of injury if they keep going for another five minutes and some light flashed on your bench. Um, but, uh, I'm not sure if that's the way they work at this point in time. It would, it would be beneficial for sure to have access to these analytics. And I think about it, you know, as a baseball player, uh, if you could, you know, get access to what your hit speed was after you hit and, you know, modus their, their, uh, their device can actually be attached to your batting glove too. And it can give you measures of swing speed and, and launch angle and that Um, those things would just help the athlete and the the coaches. So hopefully that is the direction that, that they are going. And one of the things too, on top of that, that, you know, like I, I very much know what I know and know what I don't. So I'm not going to even pretend to try to go down this route, but someone with your experience, uh, I'd love to hear what your opinions are uh, of the industry and where we're going in this. But it seems like uh, so far the a big theme of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference is uh, AI, machine learning, predictive an- analytics. How how close is it 
to uh, are we, I guess, from maybe removing the human element of analytics and allowing, you know, a machine based learning or AI to really start to make some of these uh, predictable decision making uh, decisions, I guess, in uh, in these uh, human sort of behaviors or human sort of movements. I don't think we're that close to it. Um, the the nice thing about those machine learning algorithms is that they just get your your answer a lot faster uh, than than you did in the in the past. But really, you still need a person to interpret things at the end of the day and to determine whether or not that information is useful to you. Uh, it's nice to try and paint all pictures with the same you know brushstroke, but realistically, there's a lot of different factors that go into determining you know is somebody at injury risk, and I don't think you can get all of that from uh, from the data that is currently available. And as a result, you can't really get uh, that information uh, into your machine learning algorithms. So it, it's really, uh, you know, back to like the original concept of computers. If you have garbage going in, you get garbage coming out. And uh, I think we still have to work on a lot of those inputs. Uh, just a quick story, just in like our ergonomics field, um, there, was a, there was a great... Uh, paper done by an author named Bejos back in the 90s and he looked at all the different risk factors for injury in a big uh, I was actually at Boeing and they you know they saw people lifting things they were uh, that were really heavy they were at a risk of injury but almost double that risk factor was psychosocial things which were not currently being measured and another great one um, done at Ohio State uh, a study looked at how your lifting kinematics and kinetics changed uh, if you were in a stressful versus a non-stressful environment so that gets thrown into the mix as well so it's really challenging to just say that uh, one computer algorithm or one machine learning approach can answer all the questions and my um my general experience with this so far is just interacting with the people on pitching Twitter and and seeing you know where their their arguments and their discussions take them and it's it's kind of funny because you have all these different camps where it's like uh, velocity is the most important thing and commands the most important thing and never the two shall meet well realistically it's a blend of those and then at the, the same time, there's people that are saying it's velocity that's the only predictor of injury. And then other people are saying it's the mechanics that are the only thing that matter when getting hurt. And then you totally ignore the fact that if you have perfect mechanics, but you do it a million times, you're still going to get hurt. So uh, it, it seems like right now, um, the current state of things is that people tend to pick their camp and uh, it's viewed as, oh, we really shouldn't be crossing over. Um, when realistically, what we need is uh, a lot of people working together from different disciplines and trying to tie all these uh, these problems together by looking at them through different lenses. And I think that's really from a professional pursuit. One of the things I've tried to do is to live on the fringe and live on the edge and realize how so similar a lot of these camps are and try to attempt to bridge different groups of people together to answer a common problem that we all have, right? Like, regardless of what camp that you're in, I think all of them would, would say that player health and pre preventing injuries from occurring is what they're trying to do at the end of the day. And 
whether it is velocity or con- command or control or whatever, we see the similar battle within physical preparation as far as the modalities and the tools that we use to optimally prepare athletes. We see the same thing um, from a sports science standpoint, whether what metric from catapult or whatever sort of workload monitoring tool or technology you want to use. Is it is it top end speed? Is it sprints? Is it velocity? Is it total distance? Is it I, uh, IMAs, um, rapid accelerations, decelerations? But ultimately, I don't think it can be just one, like you said. I think it. we have to take a 30,000 foot view and realize that with human behavior and human uh, people that it's not going to typically be just one singular method uh, metric to to predict or to assess whether an athlete's at a higher rate of injury. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, I would. It's it's totally true. It's like you have to take the thirty thousand view, and then also like the the six foot view of the uh, the person themselves, and realize that there's so much interpersonal difference uh, between athletes. Uh, one of the, one of the pieces I wrote on my blog was talking about how. Uh, if you look at a football player, you you can get a pretty decent idea as to what position they play just from seeing their body type. But then you have like Chris Sale plays the same position as Bartolo Colon, who plays the same position as Marcus Stroman. And those are three extremely different body types, but they all do the same job. And they all have uh, different risks of injury and they all have different, uh, you know, uh, ways of, of performing the same job, uh, but they do it in very different ways. So uh, there are general trends that we can identify from research. We can say like, this is a risk factor. This is a risk factor. But when you're applying it to the person by person level, um, you really do have to count like uh, account for those interpersonal differences. Yeah. And that's what makes people unique and what makes somebody a star and somebody else uh, not, not able to, to perform at a high level. And I think that's, you know, that was something similar that was uh, presented at the Seattle Sounders Sports Science Weekend last year was just asking their sports scientists and people that are, you know, in charge of sort of workload monitoring and a number of other facets to start to understand the human aspect of the information and the data that they're collecting. And one of the, the central themes was literally just being present and having you know conversations and developing a rapport with the athletes that they're working with to understand that they're not just there as subjects and they're not that just there as data scientists, but they're trying to bridge the gap between them because without context of where those numbers are deriving, it's hard to get a better, uh, hard to get an understanding of truly what those numbers actually mean when you're looking. Um, just at a computer or at MATLAB or you're pulling the information or scraping it from somewhere. I think context is something that's sorely missed. Oh, without a doubt. And like, that's the point that I've reached is like, I have now like worked heavily with baseball data for like a year and a half. And it's been purely with, uh, you know, pitch FX databases and pulling things off the internet. And uh, I've definitely hit my tipping point where it's like, okay, that was fun. I, I need to get um, get on the, the ground and talk to people because uh, that was fun. Uh, I've never been able to access a database of that size before. But where I have the most fun doing research is when I'm actually talking to people. So um, actually today is the, the first time I'm going to work with the team uh, to, to get uh, – to get my feet on the ground and understand what it is that actually pitching coaches want um, to uh, to help answer their questions, because really, if they 
they've got to know how to ask good, the, the right questions of us researchers for us to get them the right answers. But if we're not trying to figure out what questions they're asking, then uh, we're kind of lost. Yeah, I, you know, that's the, the, maybe the second piece of advice I try to tell our staff here is that when they're going to meet and work with the coach for the first time, that my first recommendation for them is to try to ask that coach, what are the questions that they've always had that they wish they could have an answer for, but don't have the time to do? And for that, you know, a lot of the times it starts to spur this conversation of like, I've always kind of wondered X and I wish I could figure that out. Or I've always thought that Y or Z uh, leads us to this destination, but man, I'm just too busy to figure it out. Uh, I wish I had that answer. And that's a good sort of bridge for uh, applied sports scientists to start to to draw them in breadcrumb by breadcrumb of starting to use information in their daily coaching interactions and decisions. So I'd be curious, you know, like I would love to, to touch base as you start this adventure, this journey down this pathway of, of understanding what, you know, and this is probably different from every organization to organization, but what a pitching coach generally wants or what are the questions that plagues them that they never have the time? Do you have any sort of predictions if you were to make a hypothesis about, you know, and, and tough, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but tough, what, uh, what the general thoughts that you might have that they, you know, have? I'm playing Inception a little bit, but. Yeah, I, I really just think like, Ultimately, pitching coaches are are trying to figure out how can my guys get hitters out and how can I keep them healthy doing it? And those are the big overarching questions that I think anyone who works in the field probably has. Um, and then, you know, you it, you essentially have two different streams where you can get finer and finer questions. You know, uh, how do we generate spin um, on a ball? How do we uh, get more break? How do we uh, improve velocity while making players stay healthy and, and giving them more endurance? Uh, those are all the big questions that I, I, I keep seeing. Uh, you know, and it's it's a totally different animal up here in Canada. We have uh, we have a lot of kids that are you know fifteen, sixteen, and their big focus is is hockey because you know it's Canada. So we see a different uh, different types of athletes in in baseball here than you would in some of the southern states. So that I, I couldn't tell you what specific questions I'm going to get when I once I head out there. Uh, but uh, I hope I get a lot of them so that it gives me a lot of uh, a lot of room to work with and and to hopefully answer those at a at the best level I can. Yeah, you know, like I I hear this and been a part of this in some capacities is that the worst <laughs> the worst feeling you can have is when you go in there and you're like you know hey coach I'm ready to do everything I'm you know like this is what I'm hoping for you know like what questions can I you know provide some answers for I, I'd love to provide some data for you and they're like we're good. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh, well, where do I start then? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It seems like these guys are really excited to, to have some of my input, but, uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just so excited to get, uh, you know, back on, on fields again. Cause I, I actually like kind of bringing it full circle. Um, uh, when I was in grade nine, uh, I, uh, I started as the the student trainer for the football team at the high school I was at, and they sent me to the university to learn how to tape ankles and and uh, do hamstring wraps and get my first responder certification, and I did that all through high school. 
And then uh, through undergrad, I was one of the student trainers for the football team at the University of Windsor and made some of the best friends of my life there. And, uh, you know, then I went into a different field altogether. So totally different. But now, you know, this is kind of coming back completely full circle, bringing my passions with the, the athletic therapy world together with my biomechanics and ergonomics world and then uh, channeling them towards uh, working in baseball. So it's it's super exciting. I, I love that journey where, you know, like you you divert off your pathway and then you go down a, a, a trail a little bit. And then you find your way that it forks back into what is otherwise your calling or your essential purpose. And I, I find that, I don't know, maybe just cognitively rewarding for me when, when I see and hear stories like that. So that, uh, that gets me pumped up uh, to hear that you're making that completion of that circle. Uh, I, I'd love to, for a moment, I, you know, especially with your experience, I'd love to know what you think the biggest mistakes are right now in analytics and statistics and using data informed or objective data driven um, uh, analysis into making decision makings. What, what are the biggest maybe myths and mistakes and the biggest wastes of times that you see other people or the general perception uh, has when they're thinking about these I think reductionism is probably the biggest mistake that a lot of people make, and that just means that they uh, they see one um, one thing that tweaks their interest, and then they say that's the only thing that matters, and they put their blinders on to the rest of the world. Uh, there's uh, there's just no way that we can answer these questions at this point in time um, by blinding ourselves to other possible answers or other possible opinions, because uh, if you if that was the case, we would have solved all these problems a long time ago. Yeah, that's that's a that's a an absolutely huge one. Um, I think um, from the analytics side, it's forgetting that there's human beings on the the end effector of uh, of what you're looking at. So it's great to you know pull in a database of seven million data points with pitch FX data and think that that means you know uh, who's the best pitcher in the world uh, without knowing that there's a beating heart and a bunch of muscles and tendons and bones and uh, personality on the other end uh so um you know it's the the ongoing battle that you always see on social media is the old school guys who talk about intangibles and the new school guys saying well let's measure everything uh and never the two shall meet well realistically uh things are only subjective until they can get measured and then they become objective so it's just a matter of finding the right tool to to measure those things yeah, no doubt. Um, I who do you when you think about this, and and I'll try to think of a maybe a better segue. But you know, I with with your experience and now coming maybe full circle and stepping back onto uh, back into a pen or back into uh, on the baseball field, and just thinking of maybe a younger version of yourself, right? Because it's it's a different world that we're living in now, especially like I just think of the tools, like professional-grade tools uh, for me, like as I'm going through adolescence in the 90s. Like I don't know if I had access to MATLAB or some of these pro-grade sort of tools or if I could look like go on GitHub and, and scrape data off of it back then, right? Like, hell, I don't even like – 
I had AOL little floppy disks. Like it was a big deal for me to log on and like you've got mail for me. And then like, your mom would connect to the internet. Yeah, right. Phone get off the get phone. God damn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like that that access to otherwise professional grade tools and information that a 13-year-old kid could do in their basement in their free time, right? Like so I, I, I'm painting the picture because here I am like playing Ultima online as a 13-year-old kid on dial-up, you know, 56K internet, wasting time, you know. But like now we have STEM. We have these miniature scientists and technology enthusiasts, you know, literally like engineering math, like people that are doing this in their free time and they're 13 years old and they're wondering, they're they're watching their heroes are watching the Chicago Cubs, whoever it might be, like literally win the World Series. And we're starting to blend the two together. Yeah. What would what would be your advice for, uh, you know, this 13, 14, 15 or whatever age you want to pin to it that, you know, as they're listening to this or someone's listening to this and they're like, man, you know, like Mike is doing exactly what I want to do. Like he's in the numbers, he's on the field, he's starting to work with pitching coaches so that he he's making an influence. What would be that advice that you would share to them? Uh, just, just get started. Um, a lot of people get lost in the nuances of, uh, you know, what it takes to just get moving in that direction. But man, uh, there's so many free, uh, free training courses to teach people how to work with data and and how to do some basic programming uh that if you want to go down that road go into it but uh even just websites like fangraphs like fangraphs has access to so much data and i've i've seen people online you know 16 17 that are writing little blog posts about uh you know their favorite players and that's awesome to see that people are learning how to make graphs and how you know they're learning to uh to to make uh a difference in uh, in that world, and uh, there's no reason why uh, you can't, at a young age, get into that that sort of thing. Um, in all honesty, I think like the best advice you can give somebody who's younger and looking to get into the field is just to tell them to if you think it's fun, then do it, uh, because. Like ultimately, you've got to have fun doing this. Because a lot of people, and myself not included, because I don't you know, pay my bills working in sport. Uh, but it is, uh, it's not a great pay. Um, it's tough, long hours, like I'm sure you deal with all the time, Adam. And you've got to be in it for the right reasons. And those right reasons are, uh, you truly love doing it. Yeah, I think when you can sort of, when you can mix a professional pursuit with that passion, like I, like I said earlier, it can be a double-edged sword. But for me, I, I show up every day and I work with student-athletes and it doesn't feel like work at all. And, uh, yeah. and, and I say this and, you know, like I, nearly every recruit I talk to, uh, or athlete <laughs> probably heard it from me, but like if they stopped paying me, I would probably still show up to work next day. Cause I, I love doing what I do. And that's, that's a part of finding something that is meaningful, passion, passion driven and, and, and smart. Um, Oh, without a doubt that, that means, that means the world to, to everybody. I, I want to, I want to be respectful for your time and I don't want to, uh, you know, feel like I'm, 
I'm preventing you from from doing the otherwise work that we all probably have on a weekend, uh, whether that's R and R or if that's actually like diving deep into uh, databases or anything else. But uh, I'd love to get maybe just a couple more things uh, as we kind of get to get to this. But what first of all, what would be if you could request something from this audience? You know, like. Uh, Anything that, you know, like if they could take away and apply one thing actionable from your experiences, from your history, from the things that's that's led you to the success that you've had or failures that you've made and that you would wish that they could uh, jump over or circumvent, what what would be that request? I'd say the the, you know, reaching out to that pitching Twitter community, if they're listening to it is find out whatever uh, you believe the absolute most uh, about how pitchers get people out and now go read three, four posts or papers on the exact opposite viewpoint and see how close to your, you know, the other side they actually are. Because uh, a lot of what people are reading, uh, a lot of what people are doing, um, they're not so far apart. And, uh, a lot of the times what ends up happening is that they, they start fighting over something and then if they were to actually take a step back, they're they're all saying the same thing. So uh, spend time reading the opposite viewpoint uh, is, is probably the biggest piece of advice that I can give you. You know, and I think that I, I hope that as you're saying that and certainly about uh, pitching and pitching mechanics, but I would hope that extends so much further than just pitching, right? Like... In almost every other discipline, please, please read uh, the opposite viewpoint, because I think that just provides so much humility and understanding of where the opposition or whatever, if we want to call that the opposition, but the counterpoint is. And I think that brings us so much closer to a central, agreeable uh, position and stance. And I think that's good for everybody. Yeah, it can be uncomfortable, but uh, you you know, you need to understand uh, where the other side is coming from to to better understand your own side. I think. In in the last couple years of your professional life, is there anything to to bridge that that sort of request? Is there anything that you've sort of flipped on, like that you maybe approached and thought, you know what, I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty close to this end of the spectrum. That after some analysis, you're like, you know what they might've had a better, they might've had a better approach or I'm more on the other end of it. Is there anything come to mind that you maybe made a, a switch or a decision uh, to go the other way? Um, I, I wouldn't say there's anything that, uh, that has um, been like anything that cut and dry. Uh, I would say like the biggest change that I've had uh, in recent memory is uh, going from the the paradigm that the only research that's valuable is uh, peer-reviewed published research uh, and that uh, it's great to have these social media accounts and blogs, but realistically those should just be used to fuel you towards doing actual uh, solid science that gets published. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that do really good science and publish it online uh, and I think a lot of those things uh, can be uh, just as important, if not more important, than some of the peer-reviewed research that's out there. Uh, that being said, um, 
peer-reviewed research, particularly in biomechanics and ergonomics, is extremely important because uh, going through that peer review process really does make your work that much better because it's being vetted by some of the most discerning eyes in the field. Uh, you have to do that. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think every single piece of work that you put up uh, has to get uh, to get published uh, through that realm because it takes forever. Um, you know, there's whole ethical concerns with uh, the publishing industry and how much money they make off the backs of free labor in academics. Uh, but yeah, publishing in journals uh, at one point in time in my mind was the only way to convey your message. But I've learned, uh, you know, in the last year and a half, just how important it is to to try and get your message out there in other ways, uh, be it through the internet uh, and blog posts, or be it through podcasts like day games, or even these live shows like pitch talks that uh, I've been really lucky to be a part of uh, in Ontario here. I have, uh, my brother lives out in, in uh, Silicon Valley and out there, I mean, obviously the, the overwhelming sort of uh, consensus is that they're sort of, you know, living in this sort of technology uh, bubble and that that tech bubble at any point in time uh, may pop. And as a result, you know, many, many jobs uh, could certainly go. And I, I also kind of think that we're at that point from an academia standpoint or a peer review or a scholarly journal standpoint that we might be at a bubble there. And I, I'm looking for, I'm, I'm curious what the next sort of disruptor of that industry potentially could be. But I completely agree with you. I think that there's, you know, a need for validated scholarly research um, that's gone through the peer review process but that shouldn't also discount the work that applied sports scientists or applied positions are doing as long as it's, you know, in a controlled manner and, and, uh, and, you know, in, in that realm. But I don't think that they're necessarily so mutually exclusive. Um, so man, I taught, what a, what a great insight from you. Um, Hey, I, uh, I want to do this as well. I, I would love for to hear, I'd love for you to, if someone was listening to this and they wanted to reach out to you or they wanted to, I know I, I mentioned your, your website a couple of different times or wanted to reach out to uh, your podcast and subscribe to it on iTunes or elsewhere, where can this listening audience find your materials? What's the best way they can reach you? Uh, probably through Twitter uh, at Dr. Mike Son, so D-R-M-I-K-E-S-O-N-N-E, -E, uh, or my website, mikeson.ca. Um, both are, are good places to get in contact with me, and I've got links to the pod uh, up on, on both there. Oh, wonderful, man. I, uh, Doctor, I, I appreciate, Mike, I appreciate you coming on to our show. Um, this whole idea of the Decoding Excellence show is just to provide a a sort of view, uh, a sneak behind the curtain and, and to understand what makes you tick and to try to provide maybe a narrative, uh, uh, some stories that allows for the audience to get a better understanding of what people in this industry working within sports and working within athletics um, go through their daily lives and how they got to the positions that they got in. And, and again, I just can't thank you enough for the experiences and the wisdom that you shared as we've, you know, spent a little time and geeked out over, over some information and, and, uh, 
uh, I certainly, like I said, I, this is a, a way for me to scratch my own itch. And I, I appreciate your time, sir, uh, coming on. And I look forward so much to continuing this conversation here in the future. Definitely, Adam. We'll have to touch base again in a year once I've had some time uh, working with real people again. And uh, we can go from, I don't know, maybe decoding even more excellence at that point in time. Hey, I appreciate it so much. You, sir, have a great rest of your day. Appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Dr. Mike San, for coming on to the Decoding Excellence show and discussing everything baseball mechanics, pitching, muscular fatigue, and analytics, Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I think this is a wide-ranging conversation that you should be able to take away just how important analytics and statistics are in the modern-day era of sports. I can't thank Dr. Mike San enough for participating to do this show. And like always, if you've taken anything away from the show, if it resonates with you, if it's made you think about doing something a little bit different in your high-performance practice, please go on to iTunes, give us a review, uh, an honest review. If there's things that we can continue to improve on in the show, please let me know. I would love to make this show even better for you. The purpose of this show was always to understand and decode excellence. What makes a great coach? What makes a great program? The tools, the tactics, the techniques, the intangibles that go into creating a highly successful program or becoming a master coach and practitioner. Like always, if you enjoyed this, please share it on your social media of choice. And until next time, thank you for tuning in to the Decoding Excellence Show.